This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for March 8th. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Just ahead, we answer your questions on what a congressional inquiry should look like. With lessons from President Nixon and the Watergate hearings, the Iran-Contra inquiry during the Reagan administration, and the impeachment of President Bill Clinton. As House Democrats now widen and intensify their search into President Trump's finances, taxes, and business dealings, what impact will it have on the other investigations, including the Mueller report? Our guest is Elaine Kmark. She earned her doctorate at the University of California, Berkeley, worked in the Clinton White House, and is the author of a number of books, including Why Presidents Fail and How They Can Succeed Again, and her newest, Primary Politics, Everything You Need to Know About How America Nominates Its Presidential Candidates. She is also an expert on how Congress investigates the executive branch. Our conversation in just a moment. But first, President Trump again expressing his frustration over what he is calling a fishing expedition and a partisan witch hunt. The witch hunt continues. The fact is that uh, I guess we got 81 letters. There was no collusion. There was a hoax. There was no anything. And uh, they want to do that instead of getting legislation passed. 81 people or organizations got letters. It's a disgrace. It's a disgrace to our country. I'm not surprised that it's happening. Basically, they've started the campaign. So the campaign begins. But the campaign's actually, their campaign's been going on for the last two and a half years. Uh, So it's a shame. And the people understand it. Elaine Kmark, what are you hearing in the president's response? Well, I'm hearing an effort to discredit all of the investigations. There are 17 separate investigations underway or by some entity or another into this president, and they range from his campaign practices to his business practices. One of the most interesting things about his response to this throughout all of it has been to constantly try to focus the attention narrowly on the campaign practices. He keeps saying, no collusion, nobody's ever found any collusion. And I think that that is an effort to narrow the definition of what's going on here. What's going on here really is a broad investigation into whether or not this president is corrupt and has committed crimes either in his past or possibly while in the White House. The natural follow-up then is, what is an impeachable offense? Well, an impeachable offense is really anything the United States House and the United States Senate considers it to be. The Constitution talks about high crimes and misdemeanors. We know from the Nixon impeachment efforts that obstruction of justice and abuse of power are clearly impeachable offenses because they both violate the separation of powers that is so critical to the Constitution. Um, Beyond that, we're not sure. Um, This president is the first president to have looked, look, allegedly violated the emoluments clause of the Constitution, something that nobody even knew about (laughs) until Donald Trump became president. So again, the the impeachable offenses are really anything that Congress decides they are and that the Senate decides to convict on. 
With the two most recent high-profile congressional investigations, Watergate in the 1970s and Bill Clinton and his link to Monica Lewinsky in the late 1990s, give us a sense of the contours of this investigation. What are the similarities? What are the differences? Um, I think the similarities are that the focus is in all three. The clearest case is obstruction of justice. Now, Nixon was obstructing justice in a monumental way. He was directing payoffs to criminals to lie in court and to contain the investigation. So for him, and he was doing things like direct asking the CIA to shut down an investigation that the FBI was was conducting. So Nixon was massively involved in obstruction of justice. Clinton did also commit some obstruction of justice. He did lie to prosecutors, but it was about something that ultimately the Senate considered not that important, which which was his um, affair with a, a young woman. So I think that, and, and in this one, it is very clear that the House and the Senate will be looking at obstruction of justice stemming from the firing of FBI Director Comey and all the things that the president has seemed to have done afterwards to, again, contain the investigation. So I think the scope of this obstruction is more like the Watergate case than it is like the Bill Clinton case, which was pretty narrow. So let's go back to the Watergate investigation. And as we've been hearing in recent weeks, the drumbeat of the Mueller investigation, the cost and the length of the investigation, here is what Richard Nixon said in 1974 as the Watergate investigation was intensifying. I would like to add a personal word with regard to an issue that has been of great concern to all Americans over the past year. I refer of course, to the investigations of the so-called Watergate affair. As you know, I have provided to the special prosecutor voluntarily a great deal of material. I believe that I have provided all the material that he needs to conclude his investigations and to proceed to prosecute the guilty and to clear the innocent. I believe the time has come to bring that investigation and the other investigations of this matter to an end. One year of Watergate is enough. Are there similarities to what we're hearing today from President Trump and this White House? Oh, very much so. And remember that when Nixon um, delivered that State of the Union, many of his closest associates had been indicted and convicted. People were in jail or on their way to jail. That is a similar situation today with President Trump. Many of the people associated with him have been, particularly his campaign manager, Paul Manafort, have been indicted and convicted and are on their way to jail. And, of course, as we saw last week, his lawyer, Michael Cohen, indicted and on his way to jail, um, in fact, in May. So the situation is very similar. Um, What closed down... Watergate. What ended it was the discovery of the tapes. And what the tapes did is they directly connected the President of the United States to an order to obstruct justice. It was a clear violation of the law and clearly rose to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors. 
what is not happened yet, even though it feels kind of like Watergate, is we do not have any clear connection between Donald Trump himself and the various um, campaign operatives who appear to have talked to Russians, had something to do with deal with do with the Russians, etc. So far, Trump himself is not in there, and so there's a lot of smoke, but there is no smoking gun. And interestingly enough, Elaine K. Mark, the question that Howard Baker, a Republican senator from Tennessee, posed in 1973, seems especially relevant today. Let's listen. The central question at this point is simply put, what did the president know and when did he know it? That is the question. It was the question then and it remains the question today. You know, we saw Michael Cohen testify last week and for many of us who are old enough to remember, it, we could remember John Dean testifying way back in 1973. And one of the similarities there is that it's really sort of right now, it's Michael Cohen's word versus the president of the United States. In 1973, it was a young White House lawyer's word versus the, a second term president of the United States. So the, the similarities are there. Now, what broke open Watergate was the existence of the tapes. Because the tapes, and, and Dean says this in his biography, the tapes validated him in a way that he would have never been validated had there not been the tapes. Michael Cohen showed up last week with some evidence, some hard evidence, you know, checks, okay, allegedly written by the president, um, a couple of, of, of other things, um, hoping that those would validate his testimony. Um, but we don't really have anything yet as dramatic linking President Trump to um, illegal activities or to obstruction of justice. So let's break it down to the three main inquiries or investigations. You've got the Mueller investigation. You now have congressional Democrats looking into the president's finances and business dealings. And you have the Southern District of New York. So let's go through each one mm -hmm. individually. What is the Mueller report all about? The Mueller report is supposed to be fairly narrow, and it's supposed to be the connections between Donald Trump, his campaign, and the Russians, and the Russian attempt, which is well established, to infiltrate and affect the American elections. Now, the president's stance is understandable, which is, I didn't have anything to do with that. Right. And obviously the Russians did do this. We now have plenty of evidence in the indictments um, that the Russians were doing this. But we don't really have any hard evidence. We just have some circ circumstantial evidence that the president's campaign was involved or directing this or somehow knew about it. So that's the Mueller report. It's about Russia. Let's turn to the congressional inquiry and what we heard from the chair of the House Judiciary Committee this past week. Democrat Jerry Nadler of New York. What is that all about? Well, Jerry Nadler has a broader mission, okay, because House Judiciary, well, first of all, let me step back. The established in 1938 in a big Supreme Court case was the fact that a legislative inquiry can be, and I'm quoting from the court case, as broad, as searching, and as exhaustive as is necessary to make effective the constitutional powers of Congress. 
A judicial inquiry relates to a case. A legislative inquiry anticipates all possible cases which may arise. Now, that sets the constitutional precedent for a big look into a president. And that's what Jerry Nadler has in his Judiciary Committee. He can go anywhere. In some ways, Mueller is constrained to look at connections with Russia, and that was his mandate. Um, Jerry Nadler can look at anything he wants to look at under the Constitution, under the rulings of the Supreme Court. And one side note, back in the 1990s, Donald Trump, businessman in New York, referred to Jerry Nadler as Fat Jerry. Of course, yeah. at that point, he was over 300 pounds. He's a little less fat right now. <laughs> but, but you wonder if that's not in the back of his mind. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure it is. But, you know, let's face it. Donald Trump has insulted just about everybody in American politics that he possibly ever talked about. I mean, that's his M.O., is insulting people. So I'm not sure that Jerry Nadler is going to be more insulted than any of the other people. Remember that Donald Trump goes out of his way to insult his Republican Senate colleagues, which is probably a far more dangerous habit than insulting a Democrat. Let's stay with the House Judiciary Committee. In this exchange uh, a week ago on ABC's This Week with George Stephanopoulos and the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, Congressman Jerry Nadler of New York. Do you think the president obstructed justice? Yes, I do. If that's... It's very clear that the president obstructed justice. It's very clear. Uh, Eleven hundred times he referred to the Mueller investigation as a witch hunt. He tried to, f- he, f- he fired, uh, uh, he tried to protect uh, Flynn from being investigated by the, uh, by the FBI. He fired Comey in order to stop the Russian thing, as he told uh, NBC News. He, uh, he's dangled part, if he's, it... he's threatened, he's intimidated witnesses in public. If that's the case, then is the decision not to pursue impeachment right now simply political, if you believe he obstructed justice? No, uh, we have to. We have to. We have to do the investigations and get all this. We we do not now have uh, the evidence all all sorted out and everything to to do an, to, to to do an impeachment. Before you impeach somebody, you have to persuade the American public that it ought to, to happen. You have to persuade enough of the oppos- of the opposition party voters or the Trump voters uh, that you're not just trying. It's to a very steal. high bar. Yeah. It is a very high bar. You're not just trying to steal the last election, to reverse the results of the last election. We may or may not get there. As you listen to that exchange, Elaine K. Marker, you're shaking your head. Yeah, I mean, he's he's absolutely right. The, the Democratic leadership from the beginning has been very cautious about impeachment because it's such a serious measure to take. And part of what's going on here is the Democrats are kind of waiting for the Republicans to move away from this president. Now, as we saw in the hearing with Michael Cohen, it was an interesting sort of halfway move. They were very, very aggressive about trying to tear down Michael Cohen's veracity. They kept calling him liar, liar. It was like liar, liar, pants on fire. It was just nonstop. What they did not do, which was interesting, is they did not, in fact, try to contradict Cohen on specific things that he said about the president. He did. They didn't get into the content of Cohen's testimony. They concentrated on tearing down Michael Cohen. So it was an interesting 
instance where I think what was going on in people's minds was, let's try to do our duty by the president by tearing down this rat, as the president has called him. Um, However, let's not get ourselves tangled up in something that could turn out to be just the tip of an iceberg and come back to bite us. Let me remind our listeners that we are talking with Elaine K. Mark. She is a senior fellow at Brookings and the author of the book, Primary Politics, Everything You Need to Know About How America Nominates Its Presidential Candidates. And you were quoted in a piece for the Wall Street Journal, the headline, Democrats' impeachment clock is ticking. And you told the Wall Street Journal, quote, I think it's wise to get it over with. It could be an intense summer. Yes, I I think there's a window here, right? The window is really between now and September. And the the steps of this are pretty straightforward. The Judiciary Committee has to write the articles of impeachment. The House has to pass them. And then what people don't quite take into account is the minute the House passes articles of impeachment, all business stops in the Senate. And the trial must begin. In other words, they can't drag this thing out. You can't drag it out for months and months and months. You've got to go right to a trial. Um, Bill Clinton went right to a trial, didn't take very long. There were not enough votes, and you need two-thirds of the Senate. There were not enough votes to convict Bill Clinton. Um, With Richard Nixon, they never even voted on impeachment, nor did they have a trial. But Barry Goldwater and Howard Baker and a couple other people went to the Oval Office and said to Richard Nixon, essentially, time's up. We don't have the votes to stop an impeachment vote, nor do we have in the votes in the Senate to not convict you. You will be convicted if this goes to the Senate. Now, Nixon was in the situation, it was his second term, right? He was halfway through his second term. Um, plus, Nixon was not a rich man. So, you know, practical considerations. If he was impeached, he wouldn't have his pension. Nixon got his pension, got his full retirement, got his his presidential library, et cetera. And, of course, went on to continue to be part of the life of the country because, of course, he had a lot of things to say. He was a very smart guy, particularly in, in uh, foreign policy. So, you know, he, he kind of got out of it. Um, nobody really knows what Donald Trump would do if Mitch McConnell walked into his office in five months and said, it's up. You know, they're going to convict you. Who knows? I mean, Donald Trump is such a combative personality. Um, I don't think he really needs his congressional pension, although the way the Southern District of New York is going after his business, he might. Um, So we don't know what Donald Trump would do if that ever happened. So if you take Speaker Pelosi and congressional Democrats at their word, that House Democrats are not there yet in terms of impeachment, what potentially could turn the tide? I think there are two things that could turn the tide. Um, One would be extensive evidence of Donald Trump's decades-long entanglement with the Russian government through his businesses, Uh, particularly if the Mueller report shows that Donald Trump is not a brilliant businessman, as most of his followers assume he is, but that he has been essentially propped up by foreign money and some questionable foreign money for many years now. Now, that could turn the tide. I don't know if that's there. I don't know if Mueller can prove that, but that's certainly one thing that could make people doubt him. 
Secondly would be some sort of very amoral behavior, uh, not having an affair with a Playboy bunny or a porn star. It would have to be something worse than that. And we don't know if there's anything like that out there. Some people think there is. Some people wonder about the, the Epstein case and whether or not there's a, a Trump connection there. Um, but it would have to be much worse than what we've seen so far. So answer this question. If Donald Trump was involved in any of these activities as a private citizen, as a businessman, does that translate into his job as the president of the United States? Would that be an impeachable offense? It depends on the extent to which his fortune is dependent upon foreign money. Because it's just like a conflict of interest in the private sector. If you want to get hired as the president of Coca-Cola, um, it probably they'll probably want to know if you have a lot of stock in Pepsi. <laughs> okay, I mean we deal with conflicts of interest all the time in the private sector. If in fact Donald Trump is beholden to the Russian government for his fortune, then what you have is a clear conflict of interest. Can he faithfully? represent the interests of the United States of America if he is beholden to another country. So let's turn to the third major investigation. We're learning a little bit about the Southern District of New York. What are they looking into and why? Well, the Southern District of New York has already looked into his foundation and barred his children and Trump from ever serving on the board of a philanthropic foundation in New York. Now that's pretty serious stuff. They are also looking deeply into his tax situation. Did he falsify tax returns? We have Michael Cohen's testimony that he, when he wanted to borrow money, he inflated his worth. When he wanted to pay, t when he had to pay taxes, he deflated his worth. Uh, a lot of fraud. All of that is fraud. If if you if you go for a loan at a bank and you give them a misleading financial statement, it's bank fraud. Okay, So the interesting thing about the Southern District of New York is that they are really aiming at the Trump empire. And Trump may find himself as an ex-president substantially less wealthy than he is now or that he thinks he is. What do you think is in these tax returns? What do you want to know? I want to know what the loan situation is. That's what I want. To, I want to know who he owes money to. That's, that's I think, the question everybody's going to be looking for is, well, first of all, you know, I think in general the public will be interested to know if he's really as rich as he says he is. We know from past um, statements that he worked very, very hard to be on that Forbes list of the richest men in America. And, of course, he's not nearly as rich as many other Americans who criticized him, like Michael Bloomberg. Um, so we'll want, to, we'll want to know how rich he is. But I think more fundamentally is we'll want to know who does he owe money to and what kind of constraints does that put on his actions. Historians have commonly said that one of the lessons of Watergate is, despite all of the problems 
and all that the country went through, the system basically worked. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, Congress is very slow to pick up its powers again, having acted a little bit more like a parliamentary system than a separation of powers system under the uh, Trump administration and even under the Bush administration. Um, But Congress has substantial power. In fact, we went through a long period in our history from the end of the Civil War all the way up into the early 1900s where Congress was substantially more important in public policymaking, in politics, than the presidents of the United States were. It was only really with, with, with FDR, with Franklin Roosevelt, that power switched back to or switched to the executive. And we have we're now accustomed to very strong presidents. But that may be changing right now. We also know that President Trump has been particularly inept dealing with Congress. He has no bipartisan legislation. Well, he did, and no, to his credit, he does have that crime bill. So he has one piece of bipartisan legislation. But other than that, even his own Republican senators have gone against him on issues like Syria. So let's remind our audience what happened in the winter and summer of 1998 at the time, President Bill Clinton. But I want to say one thing to the American people. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. These allegations are false, and I need to go back to work for the American people. Thank you. As you know, in a deposition in January, I was asked questions about my relationship with Monica Lewinsky. While my answers were legally accurate, I did not volunteer information. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Ms. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. In fact, it was wrong. It constituted a critical lapse in judgment and a personal failure on my part for which I am solely and completely responsible. From 1998, Elaine K. Mark, the lesson for the president and the presidency and for the Republicans, which at the time controlled the House of Representatives? Well, the lesson was don't lie. (laughs) Okay, don't lie. I mean, and again, the standard for catching a president is pretty high. Okay, so in the case of Nixon, as we discussed earlier, it was the actual tape, him directing Haldeman to basically stop the investigation, stop the Watergate investigation. In the case of Bill Clinton, and this is kind of embarrassing to this day, it was a blue dress, okay? It was a blue dress that unequivocally connected Bill Clinton with Monica Lewinsky in a sexual act, okay? (laughs) We'll leave it up to Bill Clinton to define uh, these various acts. But um, there was actually hard evidence in both instances, So what we're looking for now is, all right, is there actual hard evidence of misbehavior? Are there bank transfers? Are there NSA intercepts? What's in the tax returns? Okay. What is it that Mueller could find? Because remember, he has investigatory powers that nobody else has. 
Um, what is it that Mueller could find that could directly connect the president to wrongdoing, as opposed to many of his associates and campaign aides, et cetera? You have explained eloquently the process of what could happen, potentially. As you sit here in March of 2019, what do you think will happen? Boy, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it's really, really hard to say. And again, because there's two stages to this, right? One is what's in the Mueller report. Um, two is then how does the country react to it? It's very clear to me that the Democrats will not pursue impeachment unless there is some Republican support for it. So there's going to be two tests. Will there be some Republican support in the House? And then will there be enough Republican support in the Senate to convict? They need 20 Republican senators. People will be looking very closely at the vote in the Senate, which is going to happen sometime this week, on the emergency powers. They'll be looking to see, okay, how many Republican senators do, senators do vote against the president? That is going to be a big deal. And every vote like that, where there's some Republican defections, um, are going to be read very carefully um, if and when there is an impeachment proceeding. Let me put another potential path on the table and remind our audience what President Ronald Reagan said back in 1987. As Congress was looking into the Iran-Contra affair, there was a commission put together by the president led by former Senator John Tower, known as the Tower Commission, and then the president delivering this address from the Oval Office to the American people. I've studied the board's report. Its findings are honest, convincing, and highly critical, and I accept them. And tonight, I want to share with you my thoughts on these findings and report to you on the actions I'm taking to implement the board's recommendations. First, let me say I take full responsibility for my own actions and for those of my administration. As angry as I may be about activities undertaken without my knowledge, I am still accountable for those activities. As disappointed as I may be in some who served me, I am still the one who must answer to the American people for this behavior. And as personally distasteful as I find secret bank accounts and diverted funds, well, as the Navy would say, this happened on my watch. President Ronald Reagan taking full responsibility, and to paraphrase Harry Truman, the buck stops with him. Is that a potential path for Donald Trump if he does take responsibility for whatever we learn down the road? Well, it is a potential path for him for sure. Um, but boy, oh boy, he's shown no aptitude <laughs> for taking this path. His only response seems to be to be angry and to lash out. I, I, listening to that, I want you to play a little uh, game in your mind. Imagine if when Donald Trump was elected and in his, the first spring of his first year in office, instead of firing James Comey, and telling people he wanted to shut down the investigation, imagine if he had given a speech that said, this alle these allegations of Russian interference in our democracy are totally unacceptable. I intend to use the powers of the government to get to the bottom of this and to make sure that it doesn't happen again. We have to protect our democracy. Now, 
you know, if he'd done something like that, they there still would have been the probably the report, the actions of the Russian Internet Agency would have come out. But people probably would not have been terribly interested in doing the depths of investigations that they did. The amazing thing about this president, and Steve Bannon said it best, he said that the firing of James Comey was the biggest unforced error in American politics. And boy, oh boy, I agree with that. Because if you roll this back, right, and if, if simply the president had, had taken ownership of this and said he wanted to get to the bottom of it um, without firing and trying to shut down investigations, I don't think we'd be where we are today. You, of course, no stranger to politics and Washington, D.C. What is the Elaine K. Mark story? My story, <laughs> personally? Well, I was in the Clinton administration in the first term. I left to go teach at Harvard by at the beginning of the second term. Um, you could have knocked me over with a feather when Dan Baltz of the Washington Post called me one winter day in Boston in my kitchen to ask if I knew about this woman, Monica Lewinsky. Um, I was completely surprised. I didn't, I, I mean, I, I didn't really think that Bill Clinton would do anything like this in the White House. I was totally amazed by it. And um, before that, and so I'm kind of familiar with this, this pattern um, of politics. And I was a graduate student in political science in Berkeley, and my first year of graduate school was 1973 and 1974 which unfortunately dates me, but also the Nixon impeachment is just burned in my brain because we lived it every single minute as you know, young graduate students watching this unfold. And as I've constantly telling my own students today, this is not normal. This presidency is not normal. There is nothing normal about this president or the presidency he's conducted. And I think a lot of people hope that we can at some point get back to normality somehow. One of your other books, Why Presidents Fail and How They Can Succeed Again, in today's partisan political environment, in the media that we're dealing with today, how can any president succeed? Oh, they can succeed by obeying the law, first of all. They can succeed by putting talented people who understand something about government in key positions. And and mostly, and this comes out of my book, because I don't think that either George Bush nor Barack Obama did this particularly well, they can succeed by paying more attention to the government that they run and learning from it and also watching for when it's going to go awry. And the the separation, the distance between our 21st century presidents and their government has gotten, I think, to an unhealthy point. And we need to connect the two because whether or not the president likes it, when things screw up, the American people blame him <laughs> or her some one of these days. And that connection, I think, has to be reestablished for presidents to succeed again. So let me conclude with this question with uh, a focus on both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue. Based on lessons from history, what advice would you give the White House, the president in particular, and conversely to congressional Democrats? Well, congressional Democrats, I would say they, they need to tread very cautiously 
and they need to stick to hard evidence. They need to look for hard evidence. And if they don't find any hard evidence, they need to simply say so, right? They need to, you know, exonerate the president. If, the, if it's not there, it's not there. And they shouldn't keep trying to do this for partisan means, because I think the public will see right through it and it'll, it'll boomerang, boomerang. So look for hard evidence. I think for the president, and I don't, he will never take this advice, but boy, oh boy, he needs to stop tweeting. He needs to stop talking. The guy, every single time he's out there unscripted, he digs himself into another hole. And he really needs to listen to his lawyers, which we know from the number of lawyers who've quit and from the number of lawyers who've complained, you know, he's, he's like your worst client ever. And he needs to stop doing that because he has, he has taken a situation and made it very, very bad. And I'm not sure he needed to do that. As somebody who studies politics, Congress, and the presidency, certainly no shortage of things to look at in this president. That's, that's for sure. This president, it's interesting, this president brings into relief the presidency itself partially because this president is so different than former presidents, Democrats, or Republicans in his way of operating and conducting the business of the government. Elaine K. Mark, a senior fellow at Brookings here in Washington, D.C., and her latest book, Primary Politics. Thank you very much for stopping by the C-SPAN studios. Thank you. And a reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app, online at cspan.org or wherever you download your favorite podcast. We thank you for listening.